Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. The weirder the niche is, the more people are out there on the planet feeling isolated and feeling like no one else does this thing that they love or no one else gets it the way that they do. And they love this thing, but they don't know how to they, they've been sidelined, right? They've gone into a store and they've been treated like a weirdo. Their family thinks they're weird because they do this thing. They've, they've been made fun of all their life. You know, guys that knit, they're like, why do you knit? You know, you're, that's only for old ladies, you know, young people that knit, you know, they're like, why that's only for old people, older people that knit cool things. Why aren't you making, you know, um, toilet paper covers, you know, the weirder it is, the more there's a need for it out there. Um, and and the, again, the more the more we grow um, as a global society, those broader needs are getting met. They're getting met by a lot of different people, right? But what's not getting met is is you know the people at the edges. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So I found out about you by way of our mutual friend, um, Bridget Lyons. Um, you have a book out called Move the Needle, which we will talk about. But as you know, from having heard the podcast, I want to start with what I think is a, a might be a rather odd question for you. But that is what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on where you've ended up with your life? Yeah, this is that's such a good question. Um, I was in what I would call a floater group. Um, I was super lucky, I think, in that I went to a public high school. It's actually, if you've ever read the book Outsiders um, with the, the Soches and the Greasers, mm -hmm. the Soches Freshman year. were, yeah, Edison High School. It's the high school I went to. That's what she, the author, S.E. Hinton, based um, the Soches on. And it was a public high school in the middle of town. And um, it, they, they had the very first G&T, Gifted and Talented Program, like a pilot program, the year that I became a freshman. And they kind of threw a huge mismatch of people. Like, I don't know what the testing criteria was, honestly, but um, it was a really interesting mix of people that were in my class that went through from ninth, ninth to 12th grade. And so I, I always gravitated 
to interesting, creative people. And I was lucky enough to have this pretty wide, I mean, we were all just friends. We just all connected. We were all going through this kind of crazy experiment together. So, you know, I, I did some cheerleading, I did some tennis playing, but, it, I, you know, hung out a lot with the, you know, the smart crowd, if you want to call it that. There was kind of a wild social crowd too. Kind of everybody sort of blended in this big mixer, which I feel really lucky for uh, looking back. You know, we've, it was a really eclectic group of people that was my social group. So yeah. it wasn't super defined, which was great. Well, you know, I think that I see two types of people when I ask them about this sort of the high school social group question. They're, you know, people like you, I think, are social chameleons. My sister was like that. She was mm-hmm. the editor in chief of a newspaper. She was friends with the athletes. She was friends with the cheerleaders. Like, I remember going to the mall with her at Christmas time when I came home, uh, when she came home from college her freshman year. We couldn't go five minutes without her running into somebody she knew. <laughs> Whereas I was a band geek and that was it. Mm-hmm. And what I wonder is, one, what is it that enables somebody like you to be a social chameleon? And then why is it that, you know, in high school, we feel so segregated inside of social groups when we're not people like you? Like, chances are you're a cheerleader. I would have bought, thought to myself, yeah, that's a girl that's never going to talk to me. <laughs> I totally would have talked to you. <laughs> I wasn't that kind of cheerleader, you know. Um, yeah. But I, I get what you're saying. And I was kind of a social chameleon. And, you know, Again, I think that was driven by the, that particular um, group. I think just as a matter of survival in most high schools and colleges and middle schools and pretty much every social group, people tend to try to, you gather with, you know, that's where birds of a feather, that the phrase comes from, right? You gather around your passion. And um, it's, I, there were times that I, at that time, I thought, I, why not figure out who I identify with? It's actually difficult that I did. I was that floater chameleon. You know, I wanted to, you want to figure out what your identity is. And, and I think that when you hang out with people that are like-minded or share a passion with you, you can find your way to that faster. Uh, So I remember feeling really kind of lost in that in high school. And I I think my, one of my kids went through a really similar thing. She's kind of, what's the phrase? Like um, master of, jack of all trades, master of none. It's kind of like that, you know? Yeah. So I think there's pluses and minuses uh, for both things. Um, what was the second part of the question? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess that, you know, that there's, you know, people who have this sort of sense of social isolation in, in high school, uh, you know, like I mm-hmm. jokingly said, I think all of adolescence is just one giant identity, identity crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess that, you know, like, I don't know that I ever found any sense of identity other than I was a band geek when I got through high school. And that kind of defined my high school experience. And like, I, I don't look at high school as a time of, you know, fond memories at all, partially because my parents uprooted me after my freshman year. Uh, oh, but I don't think I ever yeah. really, you know, found my footing in high school. And, you know, I know your parent uh, just having read the book. Uh, so I wonder, you know, how has your own high school experience uh, and also your life experience influenced the way that your parent? Oh, yeah. Um, well, that, that that is multifaceted because I have very, very <laughs> different kids. <laughs> But um, yeah, oh, let's see. How has it impacted the way that I parent? Um, you know, being that chameleon, I I think when my kids started to have that urge to gravitate to a specific thing or feel like they had to, they, they all put a lot of pressure on themselves really early on to figure out what they wanted to do. You know, um, one of my kids was a natural drummer from like age seven, you know, which is kind of a savant at drumming. One of my kids is on the spectrum and was amazing at, at maps and puzzles and things like that from very early on. And then this third kiddo, you know, she had an identity crisis because the other two kind of knew what they loved, you know. 
So every kid really required a different um, a different perspective. But my my main thing was always like, don't feel like you have to figure it all out now because <laughs> you got a long way to go, you know? And even if you think you know, even if you're this amazing drummer and you think you want to be a musician as a career, you know, stay open because um, all three of my kids are super creative, but in really different ways. And I, I didn't want her to feel like they had to get on a path and stay on the path and divide, define that path when they were, you know, seven years old. Like that's a lot of pressure for a kid too. So my kids really were in the spectrum from super defined, super narrow interests all the way to, I have no idea what I want to do. How am I going to figure out what college do I go to? How am I going to figure out what I'm going to do with my life? Putting huge pressure on herself to figure that out. So, um, so as a parent, and I'm married to a, a creative as well, you know, and, and we can get into that. We were, we had a branding agency together and now he's a painter and he's always been an artist. And I think we both are, it was a, it was a key value that we encourage the kids to create and maybe even more than that, just encourage them to explore, stay open because as a creative, very few of us land on one thing and stay with that one thing our whole life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's an understatement. Uh, <laughs> so sure. One thing I wonder, this is, you know, as uh, the older of two siblings, I always think my sister got away with murder in comparison <laughs> to what I did. And I wonder mm-hmm. if that dynamic changed with each kid and, you know, how your own perspective on the advice that you gave each kid in terms of career path changed uh, with each one based on the experience of the previous one. Because I remember I had a boss who told me, he's like, yeah, the first kid, you're all paranoid, like they hit their head against the wall and you think they're going to die. And the second <laughs> one comes along and you're basically like, yeah, whatever, he'll be fine. It's just a bruise. Yeah, I, I love the one of like um, with your first because I have three, right? The first one with the scrapbook, it's like you do the scrapbooking classes and, and like every moment, every every time they go to the bathroom, you've got an entry in the scrapbook for it, you know? And then, <laughs> and then by the time you get to the third one, you have the like first day of kindergarten and the senior year picture and that's the whole scrapbook, you know? <laughs> So, uh, but one interesting thing that happened with my kids, um, my first kiddo, we figured out he was on the spectrum. He was diagnosed when he was um, about 16 months old. And he being on the spectrum was super, is, is still incredibly visual, super, super visual. And he could do like 40 piece puzzles when he was like six months old. Like it, it was freaky. And so we hid, he was actually what they call hyperlexic. You may have heard that term, kind of the opposite of dyslexic. So we sort of put away and hid all the alphabet puzzles and maps and stuff. Cause he would do them like constantly all day long over and over. We were trying to broaden his, you know, and work with him and stuff. And then when my second kiddo came along, um, 16 months after Sam ended up being diagnosed with severe dyslexia eventually. And I blame myself forever thinking that I somehow caused it by hiding the puzzles, you know, <laughs> and I definitely didn't, you know, but at, at that time, you know, I, I, it's like I swung back and forth from, I had this autistic kid and I created his environment and then, and, you know, helped him develop the way he needed to develop. And the second one comes along and had the exact opposite, extreme auditory skills, but, um, vi- but visual dyslexia, you know, so I had a hyperlexic and a dyslexic. So, you know, then by the third kid, I decided I needed to maybe like chill and just let nature take its course. (laughs) And yeah, yeah, she kind of was the one who rode in the backseat and the car seat to everybody else's lessons and games and stuff like that and sort of picked up life uh, along the way, which made her, I think, really resilient. You know, Mm. actually, ultimately, the the more I got out of the way, uh, the 
the better the kids did. So uh, um, that's a tough one to learn, right? Because in the beginning, yeah. you think you got to figure it all out. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, so one of the things that I really wonder is, uh, you know, what are the challenges that come with raising kids on the spectrum that those of us who don't have to deal with that um, misunderstand? Because I think my only sort of exposure to, you know, w- those challenges is the TV show Parenthood, uh, which mm-hmm. it's TV. And I think they did a remarkable job with that show telling really rich 
deep stories and tackling complex issues. But watching something on TV is not the same as understanding the reality of it. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's you're lucky because when my when Sam was diagnosed, of course, parenthood didn't exist, and all I knew was Rain Man. And um, there's so many more resources now, and so much of a different understanding than I had. When Sam was diagnosed, you know, the first thing they did was tell me to read this book called um, Let Me Hear Your Voice by Catherine Maurice. She basically, it's this, it's a great book, but but she's basically saying the neurological window closes at age five and you've got to, you got to fix everything, do everything, do, you know, because you've, you've got a limited window and then it's over, you know? And it was sort of this perception that if we didn't do everything we possibly could, that he might have, you know, no chance at a job, a life, a, you know, a romance, you know, any, any kind of a life, you know, you have this kind of like black and white picture I did back then. Now there is just, of course, so much more is known and, um, and people understand that there's huge benefits to being on. I mean, you know, neurotypicals like you and me are the, <laughs> are the, you know, the, the ones with the deficit, um, from a lot, from the perspective of a lot of people on the spectrum. So, you know, there's a huge continuum, but, at the time, it was, you know, when someone said to me, your kid's autistic, what I thought of was Rain Man. Yeah. And, um, and I thought, I've got to do everything I can. So I read and researched, and there, there was almost nothing out there, shockingly, compared to what there is now. You know, um, so many great resources. Uh, my friend Mary Barbera has a, has a really great uh, movement to, to help parents that are, that are going through it. Because when it happens... When that someone tells you, you know, your kid has this challenge and uh, of course you go into what I call, I think some people go into denial and some people, for me, I went into mama bear mode or manic mama bear mode, reading, researching, not sleeping, learning as much as I possibly could, and then putting together my own team of, you know, PT, OT, um, sensory integration, like everything I could find, students that would help me. I was like, it was a total DIY so at that time, I just felt super alone. And I don't know if have you ever heard of that essay, Welcome to Holland? Um, um, I don't think so. Okay. I, most parents that have a kid with any kind of, you know, special need has has heard of this. And uh, it really struck me because I'm actually, my main name is Vandal and I'm Dutch. And uh, so th- it had a special meaning for me. But the gist of it is when you're about to be a parent, you know, and you go through, um, you're pregnant, you go through the nine months, you dream and everything. Um, the, the basic, the gist of the essay is you, if you were going to plan a trip to Italy and you worked on planning this trip for a year and you'd always dreamed of going to Italy and you get on the plane, you fly overseas, you land and the flight attendant comes on the PA and says, welcome to Holland. And you're like, what? I thought I was going to Italy. I've always dreamed of Italy. And, and like, I didn't, I didn't plan to come to Holland. And you get off the plane and you're like, what am I going to do? I plan to be in Italy. And that's, that's very much what it feels like. Holland turns out to be a wonderful place. I personally enjoyed visiting Holland more than Italy, <laughs> <laughs> but it uh, might've been the time of year, but it's just a completely different experience. So while all the other parents are worrying over like, oh no, Johnny's two pages behind in the workbook, you know, from everybody else in his class, you know, I'm like, I just want my kid to stop crying. And, uh, when someone comes up to him on the playground and wants to play, you know, mm. or, 
it's just a, a totally different shift. And then by the same token, I would take Sam to, you know, sensory integration therapy appointments and there'd be kids that are serious, you know, dealing with enormous mental, physical challenges, you know, in wheelchairs and, that you know, everything that they're dealing with. And it, it really broadens your perspective. But I think if it hadn't happened the way it happened, I might've floated along, you know, all through my kids' school and never really seen all of the other struggles and triumphs that were happening, you know, all around me. You know, you kind of, like you said, you get in your clique, you get in your group and, uh, it's hard to break out sometimes. So I think in our world today, it's better because of, because of digital, you know, and just because of more awareness, but, but at the time it was a extremely isolating experience. Um, Mm. and all you want to do is, is connect your kid into the that's world, actually you know? well it's funny because that literally is going to be my next question is um you know so obviously the the typical bond that takes place between parent and child must be pretty disrupted by this so mm-hmm. how do you form an emotional connection you know with a child like this and, and what are the challenges of that and then how does that child develop their own sense of identity in the world and you were talking about you know being able to give them some semblance of you know having a life like a career relationship all of that how does that all that happen mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a huge trial and error. Um, I I I was lucky and also unlucky in a way that my best friend's daughter, who was born at about the same time, was also on the spectrum, but neither of us knew it. So so I had her to bounce things off of once they were diagnosed. But but before that, I thought it was normal that uh, he was doing forty piece puzzles because so was his friend Kate, you know. And I thought it was normal that they would play in their own corners but not ever talk to each other. It was like oh, that turned out to be. Um, the way it is. Uh, but, um, how, how, how I did it. I mean, for the, I will just say really, it all comes back to what Sam did and Sam's effort, you know, um, it's, I just helped facilitate. And then he had some amazing teachers, but he also was really high functioning from the start. So you have that, I had that going for me, even though they told me that it's still all I could imagine was him, you know, ending up completely non-functional, you know, but, um, but he he did have those advantages. So what I did was I just leaned in to the things that he was into and helped him feel more confident. Like anytime he had any kind of a win was like a 10 times the win that a, that a, you know, neurotypical kid and parent might have. So it was like, no. just, just really celebrating, but also, um, uh, I think the hardest part was when he would have, when he would tantrum really badly or, you know, really lose it in a situation was to like stay calm and not come into the anxiety that he was feeling, you know? So just kind of to be, to learn to temper my own anxiety and temper my own, you know, fast moving brain (laughs) Mm -hmm. and learn to slow down so that I could be that, that presence for him. And luckily my husband, even though he also, you know, has had struggles with anxiety, he's generally a more laid back guy. And so, you know, lots of time with dad, lots of time outside, um, from day, really he was, he showed uh, a lot of signs from day one and man, I pushed that. I bet I put 10,000 miles on that stroller around the neighborhood. (laughs) Good for me and good for him, you know, to get out. Um, so it was just, it was, it was bird by bird, you know, it was eat the elephant one bite at a time. Um, Mm. 
Yeah. But you know, he's, he's, he's fabulous today. He's awesome. And he ended up getting a degree in GIS and the map thing paid off. Um, there was kind of a magic moment that happened with him when I can't remember if this was in the book or not, but you know, we looked at colleges. Um, he wanted to study geography and, uh, we went to a couple of different ones and then we went to where he ended up going and it was about to be winter break. And so no one was around and I was trying to find a professor for him to connect with, to, um, kind of see if it felt like the right program. Turned out the only guy around was the head of the program. And we go in and we sit down, Sam and I across the desk from this guy, Dr. Lightfoot, I think was his name. And, um, he asked Sam, so why do you want to be a geographer? And Sam immediately starts to ramble. You know, he starts to, as, as people on the spectrum will, when you, when you land on the subject that they really love, <laughs> he, he could go for days. And uh, he actually has memorized every road in the world. and can tell you he's a human GIS. It's amazing. <laughs> Great party trick. But yeah. so he, starts to, he starts to ramble. And I start to cringe because I'm like, oh, no, he's blowing this. You know, it's... Uh, this, he's, he's not making any sense. You know, he starts talking about when he gets on airplanes and he looks down and he can see the rivers and, but he's saying it in a very, you know, very high tech way. And I, I'm just cringing. I'm like, oh, he's never going to get into the school. And Dr. Lightfoot kind of leans forward to his tree. He goes, yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. You're a geographer. And, and they just hyper bonded. And I, I got up and left the room because they were <laughs> they just geeked out on geography <laughs> for the next two hours. <laughs> wow. So, you know, it, you get moments like that when you're, and, and I know every parent um, can relate to that, like those moments when their kid, your kid finds their thing or, you know, really, you know, those, those joy moments, but they're like hyper magnified when you have a kid mm-hmm. who's had to work extra hard, you know? Yeah. So, so, You've made this distinction between sort of, you know, people who are neurotypical and people who are not. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I I got diagnosed with ADD when, you know, I was 28. My parents actually didn't want to admit that because Indian parents don't think that their kids have learning disabilities, just shitty teachers. Mm. Um, And so, (laughs) you know, ironically, despite the fact that I'm an author, I was failing reading in fourth grade. And my teacher called my parents in and said, your son might have a learning disability. And they're like, no, he doesn't. You're a bad teacher. And he got straight A's last year. But um, she was actually right. And it just went untreated for for 20 mm-hmm. something years. Uh, mm-hmm. So there are two questions that I have. One is that, you know, you mentioned that, you know, people who are not neurotypical think we're the ones who have the deficit. So what are the mm-hmm. advantages of not being neurotypical? Like what are the, the strengths that get amplified? And two, as a parent who has put a kid through our education system that is not neurotypical, what would you change to accommodate for, you know, people who are not? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the advantages of not being neurotypical, I will actually, I'll, I'll retract my previous statement somewhat in that my mom has been convinced since I was two that I have ADHD. And I often <laughs> say I have variations of all the acronyms. Um, I think you've got to be OCD to be a knitter. Uh, so, so I wouldn't call myself completely neurotypical. And like, like I said earlier, I think there's a complete spectrum, you know, um, there's, it's, it's all shades of gray. Um, yeah. but to me, I, I haven't ever met any super creative person who I would categorize as completely neurotypical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that that's, that's a good, yeah, honestly, I, I, I would agree. Yeah, I, uh, I just happened to hear, I, I just, Brene Brown's podcast popped up um, on my 
uh, lists yesterday, I think, and, and she made a comment. She said, um, she said the hardest feedback she ever heard was that someone told her that she was scary when she was scared. And she said, I think that is part of being a creative person. So I, I think that's the advantage. And I think, uh, I like to say creative is the new currency, right? Like, um, I think the, the age that we're headed into creatives going to become so more and more and more important. The more AI rises, the more creative is going to be important. So, you know, I personally gravitate to the non-neurotypical among us, you know, like they're, they're, yeah. they're interesting. They're the, I'm sure that every grand art master, you know, was not neurotypical. Like, I would you know, probably say that about most writer. of my podcast guests. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, you know, and and every podcaster perhaps, or a lot of the best ones, you know, they're just uh, they live life a little more on the edge, a little more. They embrace the unique. They they gravitate to the weird. They you know gravitate to the edges. So I think yeah. that's the advantage, personally. Um, I don't know how you feel about that, but okay. The, second part of the question: see edu- ADHD. I don't remember the educa- second part of the question. So the the school system <laughs> and how we yeah. how we educate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I was a Montessori kid, which the only reason I was a Montessori kid was because it was the only school that my mother would take that my mother was so far on the edge of having to parent me after two years when I was two years old. She called her mother, um, who lived in another state in a panic, the mother drove here and they scoured the newspapers to find any school that would take me at age two (laughs) before I was fully potty trained. And it was a Montessori school. And, um, I remember vividly all those manipulatives, like the environment, um, from Montessori school, even though it was only, you know, preschool. And I just, I really remember super vividly just falling in love with the whole learning process, just with the whole curiosity of learning. And I wanted my kids to have that. So, um, all, all three of my kids went to Montessori and my older two all the way through, um, well, mostly through middle school. I do think there's, uh, so I'm a big advocate for Montessori or any type of alternative learning that's more where the environment is set up, but the child is given the freedom, sort of the antithesis of that super controlled government, you know, teach to the test um, yeah. kind of thing. But I would say even more important, just from what I've experienced in my own isolation and watching what my kids have gone through, is just the, um, I've met a couple of amazing teachers, not my, they didn't teach my kids, but I've met them that have done these kind of partnering programs where you've got more neurotypical kids pairing up with more um, with kids that are more unique or have different needs. Because like, just like you said, you don't personally know someone necessarily who's on the spectrum, right? You probably do, but you know, you know, you you can't necessarily name them. You think of the show Uh instead. And I think really great school programs that, that encourage that and invite that um, community and those true friendships to form, not in a way that's like, oh, I did a good deed today, but like true friendships, you know, that happen when you have someone who gets, so when you have a joker who's hilarious and has a great sense of humor and you pair them with, with the person who never gets the joke, like really magical things can happen because you get this cool yin and yang kind of thing. And Sam ended up getting that with his college roommate, actually. Um, but so I, to me, the bigger area for growth in the education system and all education systems is more 
more space for social connection and embracing each other's differences. Cause that, that's to me what pays off later, you know, when you, when you are going to interact with all types of people out in the world. So yeah, just absolutely. getting people out of those clicks, you know. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, you so you know it's funny. I had a podcast guest here who I uh, I was on the spectrum. Was this absolutely brilliant computer scientist who taught at MIT, and you know I had asked him a lot of questions about his experiences growing up. 
And when we aired the episode, I thought this is going to help so many people. And I got an email threatening a lawsuit from that email. He said, if you don't take this down, we're going to sue you. And because he didn't like how he was portrayed, he said, you made me seem like, you know, he wanted to be known as he didn't like the fact that we didn't emphasize his like, you know, MIT computer science brilliance. And I I just kind of Mm. I was so disappointed by that because I like I thought what he said and, and what he shared would have helped so many people. And we actually had to take it down. Um, wow, but it was a really interesting, it was an interesting experience for sure. It kind of was my sort of first experience with a guest that, um, you know, on the spectrum who really just kind of like, you know, the interview went fine. And I was like, you answered the questions. Then we talked mm-hmm. about this, but then, you know, afterwards, you know, the reaction was just, oh my God. And, and, you know, like I said, I was disappointed because I actually thought he did a phenomenal job really doing, saying a lot of things that would have helped a lot of people. Oh yeah. Well, and, and that's not totally uh unexpected because a lot of people um i know sam you know has suffered with you know just social anxiety and and people that have social anxiety know that feeling of like everyone's looking at you when you walk in the room you know like just that inflated sense that that um that people are not having a a positive opinion of you but yeah that's really too bad there are some really great um podcasters and youtubers out there that are on the spectrum and do a really cool job. There's a couple, I wish I could name off the top of my head, but there's a couple that do just really great, like how to have a normal, you know, like how to, how to have a life, you know, like, um, and just help it, just talking spectrum to spectrum, like just to help people see more examples of people living full lives and, and fuller lives. And they, you know, Sam would say, I mean, Sam feels like he's got a fuller life in many ways than a lot of people. And, um, just because, yeah, how his brain works is amazing. Yeah. You know, and his and his um work ethic and stamina and um and honestly when when they were little, um when my kids were little and we'd walk I had three kids under five, you know, we'd walk into a restaurant. People called us the Sam fam because <laughs> he'd walk in and he remembered everyone's birthdays. So he'd be like, Hey, December eleventh, hey, January twenty-third. <laughs> and he was like, I again, there's no typical you know, there's no typical neurotypical. There's no typical yeah. person on the spectrum. He was, he has a natural drive for social, um, you know, for, he, he just is, he's kind of the party guy, you know, but, but he doesn't necessarily get the joke and sometimes has to yeah. hear it a few times to understand or, mm. you know, so this is a question out of morbid curiosity. So when you guys get in the <laughs> car, do you, do you even need to use Google maps to go somewhere? No, um, he gets super, super mad if we listen to Siri over him. Like that has happened a couple times. <laughs> he has blown a gasket. No, he literally, it's the greatest party trick because you can be like, okay, how do I get from, you pick a town in Florida that's got like five, population five up to the top of Canada, you know, population 37. And he'll tell you road to road to road and what you're going to pass on the way. And wow. but he's very, he's very animated about it. You know, it's not like listening to Rain Man or something. You're just like, <laughs> right, right. he's just conversational about it, you know, but yeah. it's, it's kind of mind blowing because he kind of did his, he basically did his 10,000 hours like right. in high school when everybody else was gaming, you know, he would look at Google maps, you know, mm. and, and Google earth and stuff. So that's just wow. what, that's just his thing, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> well, let's uh, let's shift gears and let's actually get into your career and your work. Uh, how in the world does somebody make a career out of being somebody who knits? And then not only that, a, thri- a thriving career like the one that you had, like how did Isn't you end up here? Crazy. 
<laughs> so crazy. Yeah. Um, well, I learned in it when I was 16. I was on a long car trip uh, looking at colleges up the East Coast, even though I ended up going to school in Texas. And um, my mom, I was bored out of my mind by the time we got to North Carolina. And my mom had a good friend who at the time owned a yarn shop. And I had, I was this, you know, like wannabe fashionista. I had absolutely zero interest in it, but I was so bored and tired of fighting with my sister that I agreed to let her teach me how to knit. And when she put those, I, I had done other crafty things. I wasn't a particularly crafty person, but when she put the sticks and the string in my hand and I watched, it was that magic of making something out of nothing. Like needlepoint and stuff like that always bored me because if I knew what it was going to look like, you know, like what was the point, you know? But with knitting, it was like you're literally creating a fabric with your fingers. And there was something very, very meditative and just inherently soothing that just I was instantly hooked. The problem was that when I got back home, I couldn't find anyone else that was cool like me <laughs> that wanted to knit. And uh, I found a little yarn shop. You know, there were, there were, there were a couple of little yarn shops, but it was very stereotypical, you know, grandma, scratchy wool, um, nothing that I wanted to make. I'd go in and come out hours later and not have anything that I was excited to make or wear. And, uh, but I, 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 stuck with it. I made baby things. I made sweaters for boyfriends. Um, I, you know, made some things for myself off and on all as I was, as I was, um, growing into through college and when my kids were little. Um, and, but on, I never, ever, ever dreamed of starting a business with it. And I actually ended up, um, I studied journalism, advertising, public, public relations. I always knew I wanted to write or do something around creative writing. I ended up starting a, uh, going to work for several different ad agencies and, um, then eventually meeting my husband working at an agency. His last name happened to be Brander, which worked out really well. <laughs> and <laughs> we got married. We eventually started an, an agency that grew and was really successful. We had a lot of big brands and all that. But after my kids were born and after going through all that with Sam and um, just as time went on, you know, about 20 years into the branding agency, I started to feel like, okay, kind of that thing I was talking about earlier, very few creative people really stick with something forever. Even if your job is telling creative stories about all different businesses all the time, it's still, uh, it started to get old and I started to look ahead and think, you know, is this what I'm going to do with my life? And so the little yarn shop that I went to at the time, um, she was about to retire and she suggested I start a yarn shop. And I told her she was insane. I had three kids under five. I've got a kid on the spectrum, got this branding business doing work for AT&T and, you know, all these big clients, hard rock and stuff, but it kind of stuck with me. And it was like, like any entrepreneur will know, um, when you get that idea in your back of your brain, it will not go away. It keeps surfacing, you know, eventually it's, you know, you need to say yes. And so I started a little yarn shop, took a lot of effort. I ended up having to make a cashmere scarf for a billionaire to get the, the uh, lease deal. But my original plan was to franchise. That was my big idea. I'm going to franchise. I'm going to start a franchise. It's going to go big right from day one. And I'll get out of the branding business after a year and I'll just do yarn all the time. Keep in mind, I had no retail background whatsoever. <laughs> I had no training at all in business. Um, and that went well for a little while, uh, but I it did, then it didn't go so well. And uh, 12 years later, I was still in the branding business. And then eventually, I'm really condensing this story, but um, 
Eventually, I discovered online um, online subscriptions. I came up with an idea for an online yarn club, and that went crazy. And then that morphed into an opportunity to start uh, Knit Stars Masterclass events. And that was seven years ago, and things have gone really bananas ever since then. So now it's become it's become a global yarn business, yes, a global knitting and crochet and, and craft business. But it, more than that, it's become, uh, I, I call it the modern maker movement, a, a movement to value creativity and value um, things that are handmade and yeah. connect people that do weird things like knitting around the world that feel isolated. Like I used to feel isolated, help them connect around that and, and form deep connections where they can, you know, make a difference. So that's, yeah. that's, that's the, that's maybe the fastest I've ever told yeah. that story. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's probably cause I, you know, I asked you so many questions that had nothing to do with it. Um, yeah, that's cool. The, the thing that, you know, there's one section of the book that really struck me is when you alluded to Shark Tank uh, and the fact that, you know, Cuban will call somebody and say, you know, this is a, a hobby, not a job. And you're like, that's BS. <laughs> um, so two questions, you know, come from this. I want to talk about that. But one of the things that really struck me was that moment when your sister, you know, handed you um, needles and, and you just kind of, you know, found yourself in this meditative moment and, you know, you didn't let that go. Why do you think people either completely ignore moments like that or have them and then do nothing afterwards. Yeah. You know, there's always somebody who says it can't happen, you know? And I think, I think a lot of times we let that one person, you may have everything in you telling you to do it. You may have, you may have all the, all the resources, you may have everything. You have that one person that says no. It's like that one hater online, you know? And that's what tends to stay in your mind. I think especially as a creative person, I mean, creativity is vulnerability, you know? So I think creative people especially have even more to to overcome, to take that leap. Because every time you put something creative out in the world, it's a vulnerable moment. You know, you're opening yourself up to criticism. It's not like solving an equation. Like you're, you make that painting and you put it up on the wall and people are going to comment on it. Um, so I think, I think it's usually one or two people in, in your life that you have to learn to not listen to. And that one person might be you, you know, um, maybe you had that one teacher along the way that was critical of the creative way you did something, you know, we all have these, these wounds where someone laughed at us or ridiculed us, you know, who knows where that came from. So I think that's the number one thing that people have to get over is that, that person who told you, you can't, even if that person is you, no. um, we tend to just put more, we listen to that more. I don't know why, you know, mm. but we do. Yeah. So well, let's talk about this whole Mark Cuban thing. You know, you <laughs> basically said that when you're lucky enough to find something creative that lights you up inside, something you know you could do every single day for the rest of your life, something you're willing to, yes, put a ton of work to grow and build when you're lucky enough to find your jobby. A jobby is one of the greatest gifts you can give yourself and more important that you can give the world when you have the space to apply deep focus to your passion, to immerse yourself in it, explore and challenge convention and fail and try again. You make discoveries. When you share these discoveries with others in the form of your business, you're not just making a living, 
you're making little joyful advancements for the whole human race. And you contrast that with, you know, the sort of Mark Cuban mindset, uh, which is is kind of interesting, right? Because you've clearly built a successful business, uh, which kind of contradicts, you know, conventional wisdom about what people think. Uh, because, you know, at the end of the day, there are certain things that are difficult to turn into to real businesses. Like Sonia Simone brought this up on a copy blogger article that I never forget. And this is something I always reference. She calls it the naked mole rat problem, where she said, you know, if you have a passion for naked mole rats, the you know audience who's willing to pay for that is pretty limited and the audience in mm-hmm. general. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, so, yeah, I mean, what do you say to those people who have these weird sort of things that, you know, don't seem you know, like they're viable in the market because viability matters, doesn't it? Oh, for sure. Um, I, but I, I firmly, firmly believe, especially the more the world, you know, expands and entrepreneurs expand, it, it, I deeply believe in niching down. You know, you've got to niche down. And I think everybody, when they start out, they try to make whatever they're going to do too broad. And um, the, the benefit that comes from it, and by the way, the word jobby, if anybody's listening in Scotland, which they probably are, uh, it has a whole other meeting in Scotland, and I apologize to any Scot- <laughs> Scottish people. <laughs> Apparently, it has a whole other meeting. You can look it up. But um, but that's the word I use for it, because I think when you take your quote-unquote hobby and turn it into your job, that's where the the real magic happens. And there's this, there's this weird... Um, thing that says what you can't make your hobby your job. Like it'll either somehow take away from the hobby and you'll lose the passion for it, or it'll never be a real business. And believe me, I've been underestimated and underestimated and underestimated. Like even right now where we're building out this 6,000 square foot makerspace, you know, still the construction people are walking in going, you're doing this for yarn. You know, there's this, what? But to me, when you get that, when you get that kind of incredulousness or that what are you making into a business? That means you, you, you're onto something. And what makes me so mad about Cuban Kim, says that I know what he means. I know he means like, Oh, it's not a real business yet. Cause you don't have enough income. You don't have enough sales or whatever, but I hate that he says it's a hobby. Like that's a bad thing, you know, yeah. because if, if you're passionate about it, to me, the saddest thing in the world is are people that do something they hate their entire life to, someday be able to do their hobby all the time, the, the thing that they love to do. It's mm. so sad that people are waiting till this magical moment when they're like 75, right? And then I'll do the thing that I love. And then what, what you always hear these stories of the day after they retired, you know, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I'm like, why would you not, why would you not do the thing that you love all the time? Like mm-hmm. why suffer? I, I think that's such a, that's such a mentality of the, you know, it's more of like an industrial revolution mentality, you know, Absolutely. and we're in a different day. So. Well, I think that to me, you know, because I, you know, my, my second book was called, you know, Audience of One, Reclaiming Creativity for Its Own Sake. And, um, you know, my friend Jordan Harbinger actually said people don't have hobbies anymore. They have side hustles. And mm-hmm. I think we've kind of lost sight of the value of a hobby that you have just for the sake of having it, because there's a sort of, you know, cultural narrative that if you can't monetize it, it's not worth doing. And think about how many things wouldn't exist if people believe that. Like everything, yeah, I mean, <laughs> like nothing would exist. No, I mean, you and I probably wouldn't be here talking uh, if you know I hadn't just followed morbid curiosity on a project <laughs> that I needed, you know, to pass the way while I was looking for past time looking for a job after I graduated from business school. Hmm. Well, the other thing that the other thing that happens um, besides 
solvency, right? Being able to do it, there is a magic moment that happens where you can actually make a living at it. And for me, that took, oh gosh, 14 years, <laughs> you know, somewhere between 12 and 14 years. It was seven years before I took a dollar from it. It was 14 years, I think, until I got out of the branding business. So I did both. Yeah. Um, and I do think that for a lot of people, they think they have to start really big. And I think starting small is key. But the biggest thing that has taken me by surprise, and and I think what people underestimate is there it's the it's the people part. It's the the weirder the niche is, the more narrow the niche is, the more people are out there on the planet feeling isolated and feeling like no one else does this thing that they love or no one else gets it the way that they do. And they love this thing, but they don't know how to. They, they've been sidelined, right? They've gone into mm-hmm. a store and they've been treated like a weirdo. Their family thinks they're weird because they do this thing. They've they've been made fun of all their life. You know, guys that knit, they're like, why do you knit? You know, you're that's only for old ladies, you know, <laughs> young people that knit. You know, they're like, why? That's only for old people. Older people that knit, cool things. Why aren't you making, you know, um, toilet paper covers? You know, I there's the weirder it is, the more there's a need for it out there. Um, and, and again, the more, the more we grow, um, as a global society, those broader needs are getting met. They're getting met by a lot of different people. Right. But what's not getting met is, is, you know, the people at the edges, you know, that like I went, I went a really long time not knowing anyone that, that was like-minded, that was positive and, and upbeat and, and fun and trendy and stuff and, and still loved to knit. And, and I would, I would put it this way. Also, there's a perception that, um, people tell me, oh, I could never, I would love to do that, but I, maybe when I retire, I'm too busy. And my people, my, the people that love, you know, our brand and, and engage with it, they're super busy people, you know, they're, <laughs> they're working for, they're doing a lot of things. They're raising families, well. they've got careers there, but they can't sit still. So like for me, I can't just sit and watch and veg out, you know, Netflix all weekend. I got to be, I got to feel like I'm doing something. And when I go to my kids, like soccer games and stuff, I would massively over cheer if I didn't have something to do with my hands. And, and so those are the people, you know, creative people, um, that are, that are, that are my people, right. They, they want to create, they want to create all the time. They, there's not enough time in, in the day or their lifetime to make all the things they want to make and do all the mm-hmm. things they want to do. So, yeah. I mean, I, I can absolutely relate. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. I think when I see any new tool or technology, my first instinct is what can I make using this? Oh, I love that. Yeah. Man. It's interesting guys, um, not to be too gender based in this, but it's the guys that I've known that have really taken off with, with knitting. Um, they tend to, this is, I'm going to be stereotypical here. They don't, they don't follow a pattern kind of like guys don't follow a map. Right. They want to just like make the thing. They have an idea for the thing and they just kind of whip it up. But then when they finish it, they have maybe an even greater sense of accomplishment. It's kind of like making some amazing thing in wood shop or whatever. And there's the, the guys I know who knit are some of the very most creative and some of the most, some of the top designers in the space are, um, are guys. And it's just, uh, they, they, where women can sometimes, get caught up in, I've got to follow the pattern exactly. I've got to know exactly what to do there. There's more fear of failure. Yeah. And, um, I noticed that a lot of the guys I know who knit, they're, they're highly experimental. 
which is mm. really cool, you know? Wow. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny you mentioned, you know, sort of this, you know, these small niches. I'm, I'm just reading this book uh, by a professor named Damon Santola that's on my book called uh, on my desk called Change, How to Make Big Things Happen. And one mm-hmm. of the things he talks about is that we have this sort of delusional idea that influencers have more control to spread over spreading ideas than they do. And that, you know, real change actually happens on, you know, the periphery of social networks in these like small, you know, tightly connected groups. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. That's, that's what we've seen, you know, um, by connect because the bond is so great because they felt isolated for so long. So they're so excited when they find people that get it. And, and then the other thing that happens that I think is that I've seen that's super magical is, which is a cheesy way to put it, but it, it is what it is. And that is once when you get people together, sitting on a couch knitting or even on zoom, you know, knitting, um, this, this safety happens. There's like this kind of magical, we're in this together. We're all doing this thing together with our hands. We have this bond. And then you can have those tougher conversations about tougher topics like race and gender and all the tough things without people coming to blows, which is, you know, you don't want people coming to blows when they have sharp sticks in their hand, but, <laughs> but you know, you can, um, I've seen this incredible, connection happen that and I think there's some there's some part to doing something with your hands that frees up the words you know yeah. um I had this friend I talked about this in the TED talk but I had this friend um going through a really tough dis- divorce her husband had come out as gay and her daughter their one kiddo just clammed up and wouldn't talk and finally one day in desperation my friend pulled out the knitting needles and some yarn said do you want to do this and got the daughter to sit there and she got the daughter making those stitches and then her words just started pouring out. Mm. Um, there's something that happens when you're, you're like co-creating, like people, if you've ever, ever gone to a painting studio or something, you know, there might yeah. be wine involved, but um, you know, it just kind of the freedom happens and the knitting space in particular went through a really big racial reckoning um, about a year before, a year and a half before, uh, like the George Floyd and, and all of the other things that have happened in the wider world. And it was really challenging um, for everybody in the space, you know, the a call-out culture developed and everything. But on the balance, it ended up uh, creating really, really great conversations, really great space for BIPOC, for people of color, Black women, especially to um, to come forward in a space where they'd been really sidelined. I mean, it's a the craft originated out of Norway, you know, I think Norway is like 98 or 99% white. Mm-hmm. So, so, um, it was a tough time, but, uh, but I think that it ended up being really fantastic, uh, steps forward were made. And I think there's it's something about that connected, like we're, we all do this thing. We share this, this quirky little passion and yeah. we make stuff together and, I don't know. There's a freedom in it. And- you know, it's funny. I was with a. I was in the Bay Area this past weekend, and I, I saw a friend that I hadn't seen in a really long time. He was a you know engineering PhD at Stanford who studied you know uh, lasers and stuff with optics that is far beyond my head. And uh, you know, he told me he was like, "I've become a rock hunter," and I was like, "What the hell is a rock hunter?" And so he showed me you know him and like these people go out looking for fluorescent lock rocks that you you can only see you know patterns under certain kinds of light. And I remember asking, I was like, Ooh. "Wait, they're." 
people who do this? He said, yeah. He said, we have a, a 6,000 person Facebook group um, that's incredibly active. And he said, and you'd be surprised. One guy is like the head of sales for all these tech companies who doesn't have to work anymore. Another is a professor <laughs> at Stanford. And I was like, it was just fascinating to, to that hear him so describe cool. that. But it's exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. You know, it's kind of like, wow, that's so interesting that this like very obscure, you know, hobby draws mm-hmm. all these really, you know, diverse set of people. Yeah, that's it. And, and I, I think the more, the more unique, the more need there is for community, you know, and luckily now we live in this global society where like you can connect with someone who geeks out over that on the other side of the world and maybe even meet up at some point, you know, and yeah. have really great conversations and build some pretty huge bridges, you know? So that's yeah. what we do with the masterclass thing. You know, that's why I think that's really, uh, taken off, um, is that it's connected people more globally than we were able to do with like the, the memberships and stuff early on. You know, it's just yeah. when we, when we launched that in the beginning, we didn't know how it would go. Cause there's of course a gazillion free YouTube videos out there in the world, uh, for knitting. And we, we launched it. We thought it might, we're, we're like, okay, we're going to make a bunch of masterclasses and we're going to go and we're going to film them where they film these famous, you know, designers and stuff, wherever they live, film these workshops and, and we thought maybe it would go over in the U.S. and maybe in Canada because it's cold up there. You know, we thought <laughs> thought it might go over. And we all, we opened the cart, and the first day, the first person who signed up was from Singapore, and the last person on the last day was from Dubai. Mm. And we went, yeah, like like all this time we've just been operating in our own framework from our own perspective, and like of course there are people all over the world that are into this and are looking for other people who are into it. You know. Yeah. So that was, that was a pretty big aha. It was a pretty big, like, whoa, okay. We, we may be onto something and, we, and, and we might be able to make a difference that's bigger than yarn, you know, <laughs> something, something bigger. So, yeah. well, I think that makes a really beautiful place to wrap up our conversation. I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews of the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? What makes somebody unmistakable? I think it's not being afraid. I think the unmistakable people that I've met for one reason or another, either because the adversity they've gone through or their age or their experience level, they've moved past the fear and there's some, and it's let them move into the light of what they're meant to do. And it's magnetic when you meet people like that. Like I just, I only want to hang out with people like that. <laughs> it's fascinating, right? It lets them move fully into whatever they're meant to do when they're able to move past whatever fear was holding them back. Mm. So... Yeah. Incredible. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom and insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, your book and everything else that you're up to? Oh, thank you so much also for having me on. I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you. Um, they can find out about everything at knitstars.com. We're in the midst actually of about to open a new flagship store and a, we will have a full website up here in the next couple weeks that'll that'll be the one single gateway to everything we've combined the previous brand called loops uh which currently sits on loopslove.com and uh everything will be under this umbrella of knitstars.com so that's the best way 
best way to find everything, depending on when you're when you're when this interview goes up. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.